The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Well, we're coming to the end of 1 Corinthians. We are in chapter 16. We're going to knock out this chapter today and next week we're going to start a a new sermon series on how Jesus makes a disciple. He's making disciples of each of us. But the case study we're looking at is Simon Peter and how the Lord is working on Simon Peter. And we'll look at John 21 next week. But today, let's give attention to 1 Corinthians 16. And this comes after this great chapter on the resurrection. And Paul just immediately goes into... Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So there'll be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, but perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries." When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will or God's will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanas. I'm not saying it right. And Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. You pray for us. Lord, these are your words, not mine, and you've promised that they would not return void, that all scripture is God-breathed and useful. And we pray that, Lord, it would be useful for making us more and more like you and conform to your image. We ask that, Lord, you would help me uh, to proclaim these words with love and with boldness 
and help us all as hearers to benefit and to grow from this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When you read a chapter like this, you're probably tempted maybe to check out. You say, well, was there any miracles in this chapter? No. Any great theological doctrines about Christology laid out in this chapter? Well, not really. Was there a great story that's being told here? Not really. Is there a false doctrine being confronted or an antagonist or protagonist drama? Not really. What then is so special about this chapter? Well, before I answer the question, perhaps we might be reminded to just take a look at, the, the, at our culture for a second. I mean, we live in the age of the selfie. And uh, psychologists are now referring to narcissism in our culture as an epidemic. And you may recall this idea of narcissism originated from the Greek mythology to over 2,000 years ago with the legend of Narcissus. And the stories about this beautiful Greek hunter you remember, and one day he happens to see his reflection in a pool of water, and he falls in love with his own reflection. It was a selfie of sorts. He becomes obsessed with his beauty, and he's unable to leave the reflected image until he dies and after his death, the flower Narcissus grew where he lay. Now, I just want you to think about that for a minute. And I can remember when I was in the third or fourth grade, I was still living here in Gaithersburg, over off Clopper Road, and I was given a camera for my birthday. It was a cool gift. And I had a couple of rolls of film that came with it. I was given two rolls of film, and I shot them both that day. And back then, you realize, I didn't realize that film was expensive. You guys probably don't even remember those days. But you would have to get the film developed, and it would take a couple days. And Anyway, it was a very inexpensive camera. It was just point and shoot. There was no focus or anything. And I remember trying to get a picture of my grandmother. And I remember seeing her run. And I have a picture of her running around the railing and booking it up the stairs. And my grandmother was just running away from the camera. And it didn't really hit me. You know, now when I think about it, she hated any pictures of herself because she didn't want to be in the picture. She didn't want it to be about her. She was totally, I mean, I was just trying to think to myself, imagine if my grandmother was here today and I was trying to tell her about the marketing plan for a selfie stick and how a selfie stick is just going to make gobs of money. We have this stick and it's able to hold up the, the camera so you can point it at yourself and take pictures and we're going to sell a selfie stick as, as a way to make money. I can just imagine my grandmother trying to get her arms around that. Psychology Today had an article a few years ago. It was an online article, and it says, the title of the article is, Why is Narcissism Increasing Among Young Americans? I got a little chuckle. I actually audibly chuckled when I read this. The answer that they gave was this. Play deprivation may underlie the increase in narcissism and decline in empathy. It, the kids aren't playing enough. So that's why they're becoming more narcissistic. <clears throat> well... The Apostle Paul said the exact opposite here in 1 Corinthians. He gives five imperatives in verse 13 and 14. 
And the five imperatives are be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. To act like men is not in contrast to women. Act like men is in contrast to being a child. And he had already rebuked them earlier for being childish. And he's saying, act like men. And then if you didn't have the fifth imperative here, and you just had those four imperatives in verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. What would you think? If you only had verse 13, what would you think? We're going to war. Because there are four imperatives about war. And actually, to act like men, if you did a little word search on the, in the Septuagint, it was the word for be courageous. Back when, when Joshua was told to be strong and courageous, and when Joab and splits the troops in half, and you be strong and courageous, and we each help each other, but let's go and fight for the Lord to death. If you didn't have verse 14, you would think this is, this is all just about military terminology. But it's not. It's about, there is, a, there is a fight that's going on, it's a spiritual fight, but everything that we do, we're to do in love. And this is amazing because when you read this chapter, what's so amazing about it is you're seeing a, an incredible snapshots that nobody's thinking about themselves. There's nothing narcissistic. There's nothing selfie. This is an amazing chapter of what love, let all that you do be done in love. And what you're seeing is pictures of love. And they're amazing pictures because they're just very common, everyday things. There's nothing miraculous here. It's the church being the church. And what we have today when we think of love is we don't have a Pauline mindset. We have kind of a, a worldly mindset, typically. And, and the idea is that when the world talks about love, the idea is that you're to accept me no matter what. And you're never to confront me because I'm very fragile and emotionally can't handle any type of criticism. So you're just to love me no matter what. And you think about how did Paul love the church in Corinth? I mean, he, he ends this epistle with saying, my love be with you all. And hey, I want to come spend the winning with you. I want to spend time with you. This is the same church that he's told them, you're arrogant five times, that you're puffed up. He's told them, when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's not the Lord's Supper you're celebrating. One gets hungry, another gets drunk. It's not the Lord's Supper you're celebrating. I mean, he gave some really hard rebukes throughout this epistle. He tells them they're childish, they need to grow up. Yet what we see, though, is that what love looks like is, is, is very much, much bigger than what the world would have you define it as is we see that, that Paul's love for them was to love them so that they would be mature in Christ. And so what you see in this chapter is not only this, this beautiful picture of, of what love looks like, but it gets to the question of, do you love the church? Because this is what Paul loved, was the church. And when I say the church, I'm talking little c, big c. The little C is your own congregation. And sometimes it's easy to be a little C lover of church. To say, oh, man, I love the church. My church. But you remember the t-shirt that was made by Babylonian B as a joke and it was my church is bigger than your church? And it was funny because that's one of the questions that Christians like to ask each other. Well, how big is your church anyway? You know, my church is bigger than your church. And, and you can be a big little C lover of church. You love your own church, but you don't really care about the rest of the churches. 
What you see with Paul here is that he loved the local church, but he loved the big church, the bride of Christ across the known world. Paul is writing from Ephesus. He is in Asia. He's in modern-day Turkey. He's writing to Christians that are in Achaia in modern-day Greece, and he's writing to people in Corinth. And what he's What he's bringing here, what he's showing you is that local communities of believers are attached to one another globally. And so we should love the local church and love the global church. And what you have in this chapter is you have Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Archaeus, believers from the Corinthian church. Here they are from Greece. They travel all the way to Ephesus. And this isn't like us today. We just hop on the plane, you know, and we get there and... This would have taken some time. Most likely, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Archaeus were delivering the Corinthian letter. And so they deliver the letter to Paul. Paul is writing, has a scribe write the response, and then he writes the greeting with his own hand in verse 21. He actually signs his own name to it, and he hands it back to those three guys, and they take the letter back to Corinth. Very first Corinthians that we are now reading was in these three guys' hands. And so what we see is there was a short-term mission trip going on back then. Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Archaeus, they came and they says, they refreshed my spirit, Paul says. They came and they, they blessed me. And so we're given snapshots in this chapter. Think of it as the opposite of selfies. Think of snapshots. Paul takes a picture of Ephesus in verse eight and nine. Talks about this wide door has been open to me, and there are many adversaries. He talks about Timothy in verse 10, and Timothy's doing the work of the Lord. Apollos, he's not able to come now, but he's doing God's will, and he'll come when he has opportunity. And the Stephanus household, they devoted themselves to the service of the Lord, verse 15. They loved the church. Then Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Archaeus, they refresh my spirit in visiting, verse 18. Aquila and Prisca, they have a church meeting in their house, verse 19. And the Corinthian church, they're to be busy collecting an offering for the poor Jews in Jerusalem. So let's take a look, think about these snapshots for a minute here. First of all, Paul is writing from Ephesus. He plans to stay until Pentecost, verse 8 and 9. He wants to spend the winter with the Corinthians. Now, he, it's interesting, you He holds his plans kind of loosely because he's taken advantage of the opportunities that he has to share the gospel. In Ephesus, Paul stayed longer than anywhere else on his four missionary journeys. And we're told why, because this wider mega door has been opened for him for effective ministry. And there are many adversaries And that's a good principle for us in life just to think about. Whenever great doors are open for you, expect adversaries. (laughs) Expect, as the blessings come, expect, expect difficulties. Don't expect wide doors open, no adversaries. Everybody just says, come on, if it were that easy, everybody'd be doing it. When you just read Acts 19 before your Sunday afternoon nap this afternoon, just read Acts 19. It's all about Paul in Ephesus. He's dialoguing daily in the hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus, and it was the public lecture room, and he was there during the siesta time. 
So from lunch through mid-afternoon, every day, Paul went there for lunch to hang out, and then he would lecture, and, he, and it was a great opportunity for evangelism as Paul had a steady stream of listeners coming to hear him because Ephesus was this key business city where all these world travelers and business people would come through Ephesus, and then they were being spread out. Most people think Epaphras came there on a business trip and got saved and went back to Colossae and planted a church there. Acts 19.10 just says this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So he had this wide door. Yet we're told that Paul says he fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. So with this mega door of opportunity, there was great opposition. And you may recall there was great spiritual battles in Ephesus. You remember the big bonfire in Ephesus? The big bonfire, as as people were getting saved, they brought all their books of magic arts, and they had this big bonfire, and they counted that it was worth 50,000 pieces of silver worth of books that they burned in a big bonfire as the occult was being driven out. Well, that didn't come without some issues. The seven sons of Sceva were trying to drive out demons that was in Ephesus and they were they were done these seven sons of Sceva were were trying this little formula they would drive out the demons in the name of Jesus and uh, whom Paul preaches they would drive out the demon and then you remember the evil demon recalled said well Paul I know and Jesus I know but who are you and the evil thing leaped on him this demon they were attacked and came out naked and wounded that must have been interesting and everybody took note. Well, that was in Ephesus. And then one particular experience at Ephesus is worth noting. As the people in Ephesus were turning from idols to the living God, they were no longer worshiping at the pagan temple. And Demetrius, who was this prominent silversmith, whose business was making these little mini idols, you know, kind of like mini Empire State Buildings, you know, these little mini idols were this little silver statue of Artemis. And his business was declining because people were getting converted to Christ. And Demetrius had enough. He got the guild together. He got all the, his business buddies and colleagues. And they were furious with Paul. And they started a riot in the city. And for two hours, they whipped the crowd into a frenzy, yelling, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! For two hours, they started a riot. They grabbed Paul and a few of his traveling companions. And they would have killed him if it hadn't been for the, for the local town clerk that intervened to save his life as Paul was drugged into the amphitheater. And uh, so as when he says, there is a wide door for me, but there are many adversaries, that's what he's getting at. And so he's asking them, okay, when I do come to you, this is what it looks like for a church to host a missionary. He's asking them a lot. He's asking them, I want to stay with you and I want you guys to help me on my journey wherever I go. He's asking for food, clothing, money, probably traveling companions. Does that sound audacious? You see, what you see in this chapter is that people shared. Koinonia isn't just fellowship in the word. Koinonia biblically is sharing everything. What you see in this chapter is they shared their money, 16, 1 to 4, and then 16, 5 to 9, and they shared their lives. Paul says, I want to stay with you for the winter. Hey, open up your house. I'm coming, I'm coming over. I want to stay with you. They shared their lives together. And so it was a sharing of money, a sharing of resources. 
And that, that probably sounds maybe a bit audacious for American ears today, but that's how they, they lived back then. And so then this offering, Paul is collecting an offering to take to the poor saints at Jerusalem. It took him over a year to collect this offering. And he's collecting it through the churches in Galatia, and he's asking the Corinthian church as well to participate in this offering. Now, we learn about the details of this offering from Romans 15. You see, at the end of Paul's third missionary journey, he's in the city of Corinth, this city, making his final collection from the Corinthians. And when he's there in, in Corinth, he writes the letter to the Romans. And there he says, in Romans 15, 25, now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Archaea were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So Paul refers to the offering not just a matter of pleasure, but it was a debt that they owed. And what Paul was saying is that the Jews had provided spiritually for the Gentiles, and now the Gentiles have the privilege to help the Jews materially and economically. Now, you'd have to have lived under a rock to not realize there was great animosity between Jews and Gentiles. And at the heartbeat of Paul, this passion was to see what? The body of Christ becoming one. And that the middle wall of partition had been broken down and now there wasn't two peoples, there's one people. And that there's no bond and no slave nor free, male nor, nor female, no Jew nor Gentile, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. Well, he wanted that to be a reality. And this was an opportunity for these largely Gentile area churches to give back to the church in Jerusalem. And it's likely that the church in Jerusalem, as a result of everybody coming to these feasts, and when the Spirit came down at Pentecost and all these people saved, the city was kind of overrun with people. It swelled and everybody stayed. Well, the Bible tells us, you know, in Acts, that a lot of people sold their possessions. Even Paul or Barnabas sold a, a field. And some people think that, that what happened was the church was so generous with their stuff that it actually hurt them financially in the future. That some gave up their, their land and their business enterprises and, and heartily gave to, to the need at the time, but as a result, it caused them to be poor later when, the, when there was a four-year famine that hit that Agapus prophesied about in Acts 11. This four-year famine hit, and it hit hard in Jerusalem. And so now these people are very poor, and so Paul is giving some real practical instructions here. And these are some real common sense kind of things for us to pick up. As he says, okay, he wants them first day of the week. That's one of the arguments we get for the Lord's Day now. The first day would have been Sunday. So they're gathering on Sunday. And he's saying, I want you to set this up regularly. Start storing it up. I don't want to be collecting when I get there. It's not going to be a last second thing. I want you guys to be collecting for this offering and then when he says, when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And the idea is that you pick the very people from your midst who are gonna take this gift to Jerusalem so that basically there'll be no accusations that Paul has had his hands on the money. And, and the, the idea of writing letters is probably also writing the very amount that's being delivered. 
So there'd be no question as to has anybody taken from the pot? And so the idea here is just real common sense. Like when we have counters that count our offering, we always have multiple counters. We don't have one counter counting our offering because it's the idea of protecting one another and making sure there's accountability. And so Paul does the same thing. And furthermore, he needs people to deliver this gift because think about it. Back then, they didn't, they didn't have these you know, armored cars. They didn't have armored chariots. And this was a lot of money going back to Jerusalem. And if you put it all on pack animals, you know, commentators said this would have been a, drawn a lot of attention to bandits. If all of a sudden they see a bunch of animals carrying stuff, it's like, bingo, we've got, you know, so they're, they're looking for people to carry this thing. And, and, and some people even speculate that the couriers would have carried the funds in a money belt or a bag suspended from the neck and they would have sewed gold coins into their garments in such a way they wouldn't clink or misshape the clothing. So the idea is to be inconspicuous as they traveled to carry this large amount of loot that's going back to Jerusalem with Gentile deliverers showing the Jewish church, these are your brothers in Christ and they don't need the snip to be part of the body of Christ. And look at the love they're showing you, okay? So that's the idea of what Paul's got intended with this. And you say, what in the world does this have to do with us? Well, you probably haven't heard about the unity fund in the PCA. Maybe some of you have, some of you haven't. And that's partly because I haven't done a good job of communicating uh, that. But here's something that happened in our General Assembly. So we're a denominational church, PCA, throughout the whole United States. And in 2015, at our 43rd General Assembly, we considered a personal resolution on racial reconciliation. We referred the matter to the 44th General Assembly, which was 2016. And the idea was to give it a year so that the lower courts could perfect and propose a resolution encouraging heartfelt repentance. The presbyteries around the country responded to this appeal to prayerfully consider any and all sins of racial prejudice by submitting overtures on racial reconciliation that called us to individual and corporate repentance. So they recognized repentance is an essential step of racial reconciliation, but not the only one. And the 43rd General Assembly also encouraged sessions and presbyteries to pursue a proper course of action humbly, sincerely, and expeditiously. And a proper course of action would also actively, include actively welcome ethnic minority brothers called to pastoral ministry, encouraging their representation as ruling and teaching elders in the PCA. So the 44th General Assembly created the PCA Unity Fund. And so the PCA Unity Fund has some objectives and goals to it, and it works out like this. The PCA Unity Fund is to provide seminary tuition sub sub subsidies to ethnic minority men called the gospel ministry in the PCA and to ethnic uh, minority men and women who are pursuing other ministry roles in a PCA church. You say, well, why would we need to do that? Well, here's a dilemma as a PCA. To be ordained in the PCA, you have to have a master's degree and to pass your ordination exams and original language and theology. To have that master's degree, for a lot of people coming from ethnic backgrounds where they don't even have a college degree, what happens is they get saved and they realize how high the hoop is in the PCA and they end up jumping ship and going to some other denomination. 
because it's too hard. So currently, the PCA has 4,882 pastors. 1% are African American and 0.8% are Latino. 10% are Korean. So the Unity Fund was created to see that we gotta do something. Here we are in a very diverse culture in America and the PCA is mainly, we have this, this chicken and the egg problem of we need more minority leadership, but the minority leadership isn't sticking around to get their master's degree, they're going somewhere else. And unless we help them, then we're, we're, we're just continuing to multiply this problem. And so the idea was to see future generations of reformed minority teaching elders, ruling elders, and missionaries raised up in the PCA to subsidize the training, mentoring, and development of minority leadership in the PCA through partnership with churches and presbyteries. And the way that it works is if you give to the Unity Fund, and I just commend this to the deacons to consider as a, as a, as a deacon's offering sometime in the future. I think this would be a great project for us to consider as a church is to show our solidarity and our unity with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ that what happens is, is the way the Unity Fund works is they have to, um, if someone is to apply for monies in that, they have to be a member of their local PCA church. They have to be under care of the presbytery. And the only way you can be under care of the presbytery is your elders have to commend you to the presbytery. So it's not just anybody getting the funds. It's a member of a PCA member who's recommended by his elders. And what happens is, is this enables people that can't afford to go to school. The other big problem we're having, as you know, is a big problem with debt. And so this is keeping people from uh, accruing large amounts of debt that takes years and years to pay off. So I think that this idea of the unity fund is similar to what Paul is commending here. Now, even though the people uh, aren't as poor as the people were in Jerusalem, the idea is to show solidarity and to show our love for our brothers and sisters of other ethnicity. And so I think one of the things that we can take away from this chapter is we see that Paul has a huge heart, not only for the local church, but for the global church. And he's seeing them all tied together as one church, one large church under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so for us, as we think about this, is going to Fairmont good for us as a church? Yes. Should you consider going to Fairmont? Yes. Am I thankful that we sent a team that worked with, and it ended up being an ethnic community of people that were poor and didn't have house insurance, and we helped reconstruct their, their houses down in North Carolina. That was a beautiful labor of love. Is going to Honduras good? Yes. Should we be praying for the Zells regularly? Yes. Um, these are beautiful things. We made a commitment as a church when we sent out Brian and Esther Hudson from this church. Their mission organization put the screws to us and they wanted to make sure that they will regularly be prayed for by this church. And I would just think as, as a reminder to the elders, as we pray each week and as we do the pastoral prayers, we made a commitment to a mission organization that we are the sending church for our brother and sister in the Middle East. And we have an obligation to pray for them. And that's a good thing. And we also see that the very common things in this chapter, just the regular mundane things, workday is good. 
Cleaning trash cans is good on workday. And putting down mulch to beautify our, our, uh, you know, our facility, that's a good thing. And so all of these things are just little labors of love. There's no miracles here. But when you put it all together, what you see is, do you love the church? And so the answer is, is if you love Jesus, then you have to love his bride. And the chapter ends with a pretty hard word. He says, if anyone does not, has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come, or Maranatha is the Aramaic for come quickly. And what you have is there's those who love the Lord and those who do not. And those who do not love the Lord are under the curse of the law and they'll be punished for their rebellion. Those who love the Lord see that Jesus died the death they should have died, suffered the weight of of their sins that were upon him, that he was crushed for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace fell upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. And so if we have no love and response for that, how can there be no gratitude? How can there be no feeling of sorrow, remorse, contrition, and brokenness? How can we not say like Peter when Jesus said to him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, well, then feed my sheep and tend my lambs and feed my lambs. The idea is care for the church, love the global church and the local church. This is just the opposite of narcissism and self and selfies. This, what you have here is unselfishness. Let all that you do be done in love. Let's pray. Father, let all that we do be done in love. We pray, O oh God, that you would enlarge our hearts, that we would love your church around the world. We think of the brothers in the Middle East that are suffering for their faith, particularly those in Sudan. Lord, forgive us for our prayerlessness and help us to to love your kingdom and to love what you're doing around the world. And we ask, Lord, for your kingdom to come. We ask, O Lord, to come. Come quickly, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.